latest episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald's Miami Marlins podcast. I'm Jordan McPherson out in the Pacific Northwest. Marlins are in the midst of a three-game series against the Seattle Mariners. First time they've been out here since 2016. First time I've been out here ever. Lovely city. Weather's beautiful. Going to be trying some grasshoppers out of T-Mobile Park at some point during this series. Uh, On the Marlins front, they keep finding a way, guys. Uh, Since we last spoke, they swept the Royals. They took two of three against the the White Sox. They dropped their series opener against the Mariners, but we'll see what happens with the rest of the series as they continue this three-city road trip that started Chicago, went all the way west to Seattle, and then will end all the way east against D.C. Uh, Even with dropping that first game against Seattle, 8-1, it was a dud of a game. They're still 37-30 on the season, three and a half behind the Braves for first in the NL East. Just a half game behind the Dodgers for the top wild card spot. And since we last spoke, basically the nature of these Marlins games have been comebacks. All five of their wins last week, all three games against Kansas City and both games against uh, Chicago, the Marlins trailed at at least one point. And look specifically at the two Chicago games that they won on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday, uh, they're down one nothing going into the ninth inning. They score five runs, win 5-1. Sunday, they're down going into the eighth. Uh, Garrett Cooper and Jorge Soler each hit home runs to knock the game down, to cut the deficit down. Gene Segura hits a home run in the ninth inning, and then Brian De La Cruz hits a go-ahead two-run double. They win the game by one run. Two big wins. Overall, now the Marlins have 20 come-from-behind victories this year. 20 of their 37 games that they have won, they were trailing at some point in the game. And this includes five games when they were trailing after the eighth inning that they've won. And that, again, includes Saturday and Sunday. The Marlins' main goal right now, they need to figure out a way to bottle up this momentum, this confidence, this ability and knack to feel like no matter what's going on in the game, no matter how far they're down, no matter how much of their backs are against the wall, that they feel like they can win as long as they have an out to play with. They're going to need that as they move forward, as they try to continue to keep their standing in the NL East, try to figure things out, and try to continue this winning way under Skip Schumacher in his first year. And another aspect of their game that's helping them out is the starting rotation starting to figure things out, guys. Uh, Obviously, Monday was a rough night for Jesus Lazardo. Gave up six runs, five earned, only went four innings. Before that, though... The Marlins' rotation the last three full turns had a 2.86 ERA over 15 starts, and that was 27 earned runs over 85 innings with 95 strikeouts against 25 walks. Everyone went at least five innings. There was a lot of, of starts going into the sixth and the seventh, and the beauty of that is it – stops putting pressure on that bullpen, which Skip Schumacher is called the strength of their team, which if you told me that a year ago, that's what you'd be saying strength of this team. It would have been maybe a wild concept to think about. But now that the Marlins starting pitchers are going deeper, they're still looking for results in terms of the earned run category at times. But with them going deeper, it's putting less pressure on the bullpen, which entering Monday had thrown the 10th most innings in baseball. Andrew Nardi's already had like 35 appearances, it feels like. And again, the high leverage situations, it can burn a bullpen out pretty fast. 
So if the Marlins starting pitchers are able to start going deeper continuously, consistently, it allows the Marlins to mix and match their their bullpen guys and not have them wear out as quickly as it seemed like they were going to to start the season. And now just the quick pitcher-by-pitcher pitcher rundown from the rotation. Uh, Sandy Alcantara still results are in where he wants him to be, a 4.75 ERA through his last 13 starts. But at least at a minimum, he's getting deeper in the games right now. He's gone at least six innings in six of his past seven starts and has pitched into the seventh in four of those seven outings. Jesus Lazardo, again, he had the rough outing on Monday, but remove that, his last six starts, he had a 3.93 ERA, had gone at least five innings in four, had given up just one run while pitching at least five innings in four of those six outings. And in and in those six starts, 43 Ks against six walks over 34 in the third innings. Edward Cabrera, who's going Tuesday, pitched at least five innings and held opponents no more than three runs in each of his past five starts. It's a 293 ERA with 31 Ks over 27 and two-thirds innings. Uh, Braxton Garrett, who to me has still been the surprise, the surprise good story of this staff. His season ERA is still extremely loaded by that horrible outing he had against Atlanta on May 3rd, but his last six starts, just a 2-2-5 ERA, eight earned runs over 32 innings. Just seven walks. He struck out 41. He was perfect. Or he had he had thrown five and a third shutout innings against Chicago on Sunday before getting pulled for the bullpen. And then finally, Iri Perez, the Marlins' top prospect, the consensus top 10 prospect, the 20-year-old wonderkind, the six-foot-eight flamethrower, 2-1-7 ERA through his first five MLB starts. His last three, one earned run over 15 innings. That's just impressive to watch, especially remembering that he's only 20 years old. And the main thing now is seeing what the Marlins do long-term with the staff, because outside of Alcantara, not none of these guys really have experience pitching deep in the season and having extended innings under their belt over a year. Uh, Perez is probably the most the biggest example of him. He's up to 60 total innings this year, 29 in the big leagues, 31 in double A Pensacola. He's never thrown more than 78 innings in a season since making his pro debut in 2021. Uh, Left-handed pitcher, Trevor Rogers, right-handed pitcher, Johnny Cueto. They're both working their way back from biceps injuries and both could be potentially back sooner than later. Cueto's expected to go four innings on Friday with double A Pensacola Trevor Rogers was supposed to go six innings on Friday with Triple A Jacksonville. That game got rained out, so he was going to do it on Saturday. And then throwing his warm-up pitches before the first game of that doubleheader, left them out. Right shoulder, his non-throwing shoulder, started feeling some discomfort. He got an MRI on Monday. Uh, the results, as of the time of this recording, had not been, yet been revealed. If everything comes back okay from that, Trevor will like Trevor Rogers will likely pitch at some point this week to continue that process, and hopefully it's just a minor speed bump and potentially could be back for at some point on the next homestand. Uh, but again, all of that is still up in the air. But Rogers and Cueto will most likely play factors in the Marlins rotation just because they're going to need to figure things out innings wise with the likes of Cabrera, Yuri Perez. Uh, and Braxton Gary. Uh, I would think Jesus Lazaro would have some all clear. He was over 100 innings last year, 
Sandy Contra, we know he can go 200. So those two are going to be fine. It's figuring out how you manage the other three, especially if you're looking at the grander goal of what's going to be happening when you're pitching in September, trying to compete for a playoff spot and the Marlins hope pitching in October in the playoffs. And to wrap up this first half of this episode, uh, all-star voting update got our first one on Monday. Uh, two Marlins are in contention for playoff spots in the voting portion of it. Remember, all-star voting is for the starters, not necessarily just making the team. Luis Arias, who leading MLB with a 391 batting average, he's leading National League for second baseman in the voting after the first round. Jorge Soler is fourth for among designated hitters behind the Dodgers' J.D. Martinez, the Phillies' Bryce Harper, and the Braves' Travis Darno. Again, voting goes on for another couple weeks. You're able to vote on MLB.com five times a day. So if you want to see either of them in there and making it back to where they are right now in, in Seattle, you're able to do just that. And now to for the second half of this week's episode, going to play an interview from one of my bigger stories that went up on Monday. I had the chance to talk with the Marlins Major League Video Coordinator, Austin Lamke, who is essentially the main person at the decision-making hub of for the Marlins when it comes to their replay challenges, which they've been very, very successful with. They're 14-1 and on the season in replay challenges. League average is hovering around 50-some percent, and Austin, between him and his rapport and relationship with Skip Schumacher and Luisa Rueda, they've been able to come up with a great system with figuring things out to the point where Austin is basically ready to go before they even call down to him about whether or not to challenge. A lot of his challenges have made big impacts on the games. Uh, at least four of them have either become the game-winning play or started a rally that ultimately put the Marlins up top. So with that, here is my interview with Austin Lamke. Well, Austin, first off, thanks for the time. I really appreciate this. Uh, most important question, how often over the last few years have you been confused with Jacob Stallings? Uh, it, started, <laughs> it started three years ago when he was still with Pittsburgh. Uh, my former athletic trainer in low A was his athletic trainer up in the big leagues with Pittsburgh. Mm. And when they came for check-in of spring training, he immediately texted me and said, your doppelganger is Jacob Stallings. And typically you deny it. You don't want to think you look like somebody, and I couldn't refute it. And the next thing I know, we trade for him, and I've gotten it every day since spring training of last year. Yeah, it took me a solid week and a half to distinguish the two of you when it's I first I set up, I set up my, some of the cameras in the stands, and that's when I get it all the time is they truly think that Jacob Stallings is in the stands setting up cameras. So nice. it's part of it. Yeah. Uh, before we dive into challenges and all that just yep. your background what got you into wanting to do video and you just take me through your trajectory to getting to where you are now sure thing yeah i uh so i went to school for sport management at southeast missouri state and i just always knew i had an interest of once i finished playing high school ball that i wanted to find a way back into working with with baseball in some capacity uh, optimistically at the major league level so i went and got my education in sport management I was fortunate enough to uh, train with somebody in high school, Ryan O'Malley, who was a, a professional pitcher for the Cubs. And then he had got me with the right connections at the time with the Texas Rangers. And it kind of helped give me some guidance with some contacts there about how baseball works and what kind of avenues lead you into opportunities here. And I was advised that video at the minor league level was something that was a good foot in the door. 
and it wasn't something I had any experience with. And I ended up taking an opportunity to interview with other teams at the winter meetings that offseason and managed to land with Texas. So my first year was in 2013 doing video. I wanted to just take as much time as I could to learn about the game, get an opportunity to be involved. And year after year kept coming through. I kept sticking with video. I ended up switching over to the Arizona Diamondbacks where I spent five years there. Um, just constantly seeking out other opportunities, baseball operations, like maybe pro scouting. And the more time I spent with video, the more I enjoyed it, the more I felt like I was getting better at it. And then realizing that that opportunity was something that was a substantial stability. And next thing you know, I found an opportunity here with Miami uh, as the minor league video coordinator. And then fortunately, an opportunity opened up here at the major league level for me to, to be up here with the big league team and you know I'm very fortunate for that opportunity. Yeah, so what goes into your day to day in addition to what you're doing game day, looking through everything and what do you do outside of game day? Or outside of when the game's going on, I should say. So outside of when the game's going on, all of it so much of it is just preparatory work for, you know, advanced materials, advanced video to high, try to help coaches and players. Uh, initially at the minor league level it was all player development video from in game stuff that we would use externally to help help these guys dive into you know their swings, their mechanics, their preparation. Uh, more so at the major league level up here, it's more those guys providing video for these guys here to prepare themselves for the upcoming opponents, um, giving them a lot of playlists and stuff that's just what they're going to see, what they're going to expect, and, and how they can kind of dial it in and focus. Um, but a lot of it is just relaying the video that we capture um, in-game to put it into playlists, to spread it out to the organization, through the players, for everybody to see across the organization. And now to the main thing, uh, the challenges. You guys are working it's 12-1 and one this year. What goes into, from your perspective, what are you doing on your side to make sure you have the best information to tell them whether yes or no, or how does it go on your end of it? Because I know everybody sees Skip with the hand up looking back at P-Base to figure out everything. From the behind-the-scenes side, what goes into into your side of it when you're looking through everything and trying to make sure, figure out whether or not it's good to challenge a certain play. Sure thing, yeah. Uh, so a lot of it's experience is what I learned after last year. Last year was my first year doing it. Um, obviously, there's so many rules that come into place, and that's where you know there's a lot of assistance from, from Pipe and Skip about knowing certain situations in the game that are oddities. Uh, they don't come up every day, but it helps having a bench coach's perspective, a manager's perspective, um, to try to give me a little feedback of can I help them. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but situations like runners, placements, stuff like that, times of throws, boundary calls, stuff like that, um, those are a little more in-depth ones, but the experience part of seeing those plays happen and learning from them, and that's something I learned my first year last year, um, was just how they go about it, catcher's interference calls and, like, just that knowledge helps. Uh, I do a lot of research of other teams and calls that get challenged, that get challenged across the way, um, across the league, and it's one of those things that those plays end up happening again from other teams in our scenarios, uh, one of them being the double play that we had in, with the Angels, the home play touching the play over to first base. It was something that came up on Mother's Day, coincidentally, with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, it was a refreshed play in my mind that they challenged it, that the catcher didn't touch home plate, and you know it became a call confirmed for them. But I'd seen that just in my research for this year. And when that play happened in L.A., it's like you're prepared for it because you've seen it. You know what to look for, what check boxes to, to go through to make sure you're covering all aspects of it. Um, but, yeah, it's also being able to understand the, the flow of the call and who's on the other line, you know, and the, the people I've worked with with James Rousen last year and Pipe this year, um, 
after some time, you get comfortable with how they expect the call to be relayed to them. That saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of questioning of what am I looking for for your help, um, for me to help you. And, you know, double play calls, it's, it's situations of is a clean slide at second base? Is he out at second base? Is he out at first base? Is there any interference calls, stuff like that? You just you learn to check those boxes all from experience. So that's the most important thing in my prep work is, is just being prepared of having seen these plays multiple, multiple times now. Yeah, I mean, you, the Angels play was one I wanted to talk about, talk about specifically against your good analysis. Uh, when, you're, when you have a play like that where it's home plate, first base, you have multiple angles that you need to be looking at and not a lot of time. How do you try to compartmentalize and figure out which thing is priority one, which is priority two, and figuring those things out so you're somewhat ready by the time that phone rings? Yeah, and it's almost you get in a flow of what you review, and it even starts before the home plate, the touch at home plate. You know, that play starts with, you know, just the swing in general. Is it something like, was it a foul ball off of his foot? Was it a catcher's interference? Like, those are the tougher ones that a lot of people don't see, especially the catcher's interference. But my, especially, you know, when we're on the road, those are things that I have time to, like, go through is, did the swing clip the catcher's mitt onto the next port? You know, did it, was it, clean play by you know the catcher did he actually field it cleanly you know then did he touch home plate you know was there any interference along the way was the runner in the you know baseline it's just a constant checklist of you know items that you go through on every play it's not just the big ones like that it's it's every time even when you know it's just a simple swing and a miss it's like I'm diving into catcher's interference calls you know like anything that goes along with it that can be reviewed it's it's every pitch every play you're looking at it in depthly and you're prepared for those moments when you know it gets into later innings and everybody's getting stressed it's just a normal play to me you just go through your checklist and you mentioned saving time a couple questions ago just only having 15 seconds from the time that play ends to having to make a decision what what has been the biggest adjustment to basically the shortened time with having to get decisions figured out yeah i think the I was fortunate last year to get 20 seconds in my first year doing this. I was fortunate enough to be able to have that little bit of, of leeway to get comfortable and adjust to that. Uh, the first two weeks here, I would say that we, we still took our time to adjust. If you look, there's there's two plays back at the beginning of the season where you see Skip eventually go up and you know want to do the, the headset signal to tell him to go to replay, and we were just a second or two late. Um, both of those plays, we still felt like they were going to be call stands. It's going to be ones that you kind of just took a flyer on just because, you you know, we had that luxury of being able to do so. Um, but that was first two times we had it. I was trying to dive a little deeper to just find something more definitive, not thinking I would. And by the time I got around to like, hey, maybe take a shot at it, it's like it's too late. So then we learned from those two those two plays there that, you know, we got to get definitive about it. We got to have a yes or no answer in a, in a timely manner. And um, but now that those two weeks have passed, you know, now I have that flow with Pipe on the phone and we know, you know, that we can shave time off of that by just understanding how he wants the play called back to him so he can check box, check mark any things that are, you know, going through his, his head. You mentioned with Pipe, you guys work together in Arizona, right? Correct. Yeah, how much does that, just already having that past relationship, do you think help with knowing what he's thinking before, even maybe even before? He picks up the phone to try it. Yeah, it, it was huge. Him and I worked together in 2015. We were in the we were with AAA Reno with Arizona. Um, he was the bench or he was the fourth coach there. You know, I was the minor league replay assistant, and excited to have him over here. Excited to know that he was going to be my bench coach because it's something that I have a good relationship with, and we've we've kept in touch over all the years until um, he got back over here. But it's a comfortability factor. You know, it's understanding like how he kind of thinks, like and, and his wealth of knowledge. You know, of this game and the rules and everything. He's going to help me. You know, understand some more intricacies of this game that happened and things that I can get better at, and and it has. And we've gone over rules of, 
you know, the baseline rules of throws from the catcher to first place and first base and, and true throws. And if a runner impedes with that, it's like little things like that. He teaches me along the way that just help me better at my job. Uh, last one for me. Yeah. A couple times over the road trip when we talk about the challenges and whatnot, Skip specifically straight up mentioned you going, yeah, it goes on my record, but really my record would be nothing without Austin. How much... How much appreciation do you have for that, knowing, again, you're behind the scenes, but you're getting the recognition. You're being able to help the team, even though a lot of people probably don't know who you are. Just how good does that feel to be able to get that recognition and know that you're making the impact on the team? Yeah, it's a great feeling. You know, it's also a very humbling feeling. I know with this territory, you know, and any kind of light that gets shed with me, I understand it's a two-way street. You know, when it's good, it's good. When it's when it's low, it's low. When I get everybody's, they've got their opinions and they're gonna they're gonna make them. But knowing that I have the support of my manager and you know my bench coach and everybody else around me, um, it's it's very calming to me. I, I've seen across the league some other ones where. You know, that trust factor might not be there with, you know, replay guys and their coaching staffs. I also know there's other staffs out there that have multiple guys that make replay decisions within the same organization. And me being able to do it by myself, you know, I'm not trying to take too much credit for it, but it's also I have one decision to make, you know, and it's it's on me at the end of the day, and I know that, good and bad, it's on me. I know that, I take that responsibility. Um, you know, others that have multiple people on their staff, it's like they discuss it amongst themselves. And, and in a group of three, if one person disagrees, you got to – question that decision of you know who's going to take blame if this is the wrong answer one person's going to have said that you know I was right you were wrong like I don't have to worry about that and I've got Skip not questioning me I don't have Pepe questioning me it's you know they leave me to decide um unfortunately it's worked out for us and you know my your gut instinct is a lot of it and just being able to understand what New York has to see you know and some of the replays we look at across the league you see there's still times where I feel like maybe they, they got it wrong. You know, I looked at one the other day from Seattle, a fair foul ball. I mean, where it's, that ball's touching the chalk in my eyes, and, and I challenge that. I challenge that all day if it's me, and they ruled it foul. Um, but at the end of the day, I know you see what you see. You know, you trust what you trust, and, and not every time you're going to get it right. But um, there's also certain situations in the game that call for you to, you know, make that decision, you know, right or wrong, and just to know, you know, that you lift nothing on the table. You're not taking it with you. Um, you know, we haven't been too conservative here this year, I don't think. We've just been fortunate that all of our calls have had enough evidence to get the overtures that we need. Um, and it's just been solid success so far. Awesome. awesome. Thanks so much. Pleasure, brother. And again, want to thank Austin for taking the time with me last week. And just quick side, the interview was done when they were uh, early, about two, a week and a half ago. So they had done two more challenges by the time I the, – the, this interview goes live. I said 12 and one in one of my first questions with them. They are up to 14 and one now. And with that, that's going to do it for this week's episode, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll be back next week to recap this second three city road trip and where the Marlins are about when them about a week, couple weeks away from the all-star break. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll be back next week.